Welcome to episode 199, Correcting Myths About Suicidal Ideation and Self-Injurious Behaviors and Providing Responsive Treatment, featuring Dr. Jamie Arnoff. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software build for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearly clinical for a free demonstration. Please note that this episode discusses death by suicide and various forms of self-injurious behaviors, including discussion of redacted case examples. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Jamie Arnoff. Uh, She is a clinician whose specialization is understanding um, suicide and self-injurious behavior. And goodness knows, as we have this conversation today, this is such uh, an important and heavy topic. And for many clinicians, it's a very scary one. So my gratitude to Dr. Jamie for coming and and talking about this, because um, I can honestly think a few topics that make clinicians more uncomfortable. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Why don't you take a moment, Jamie, to tell our clinicians listening about yourself and how you came to have this specialization? Sounds good. So I am a New York State licensed clinical psychologist, and I have been working for over a decade specializing in children, adolescents, and young adults presenting with mood and anxiety disorders, many of whom have um, a history of or actively experiencing difficulties with suicidal ideation or urges to self-harm. That's in hospital-based outpatient clinics, community-based outpatient clinics, residential treatment facilities, um, and now currently in my private practice uh, where I work in Beacon, New York. And um, in addition to providing therapy to individuals experiencing suicidal ideation or self-injurious behaviors, I also participate in um, for-profit organizations, developing presentations, pushing into schools and other community organizations to talk to children and adolescents and their teachers, coaches, caregivers directly on the topic, because I think it's so important to just be discussing it and normalizing the conversation and having people feel a little bit more comfortable just putting it on the table. Fantastic. Um, Thank you for joining us today. Before we started recording, just acknowledging how many myths there are. And I think how much misinformation, even looking back at my own education, how even what I learned 10, 15 years ago now in 2023 being out of date. And um, I'm grateful for people like you that really dive into this, stay up to date to tell the rest of us, like, "Eh, we don't do that as much anymore. Or here's how we're talking about that instead, uh, I think is really helpful because it is evolving our understanding of these things. So as we start this discussion, why don't we start first with talking about language, given it's what we're going to be using um, to describe this topic or these topics, I should say. Can you speak about the language that we should be using or that are it's what's considered most appropriate in talking about these topics? 
Sure. I think of this more in terms of uh, suicidality and suicidal ideation. There is an outdated term people will use to refer to individuals who attempt or complete suicide. They'll say committed suicide. And there's an implication of crime. It pathologizes those that are affected. It sort of places blame on the person, um, and in no other like area of death is blame placed on a person, and that contributes to a significant amount of shame to individuals who are just experiencing suicidal ideation, which I think extends to individuals that have urges to self harm as well, and that then leads to an unwillingness to want to talk about it and be able to get help. So, more appropriate, more current. Um, language that can be used to talk about it would be if an individual completed suicide or died by suicide. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that coming out of the gate. There are so many nuances in the language that we use. Out of curiosity, if you're working with a client who's using that language, that may be the more out of date language, if you will, and says, I've been thinking about committing suicide. For you as someone who specializes in this, I would assume you're using then the same language that that person is using back. Um, And what we're talking about is how we conceptually discuss it clinically. Absolutely. I do like to match a client's language. And if that is the language that they're using, especially to talk about this topic, which is what I refer to as the tough stuff, then I'm absolutely going to just lean on their language and continue using that to hope you know, propel the conversation forward. Because to your earlier point, there is the stigma about talking about suicidality and this myth that by talking about it, you're going to increase the likelihood that you do then have an increased frequency in suicidal thoughts, or there's an increased likelihood that you engage in a suicide attempt. Um, And that's just not the case. You know, research shows that it's the reverse. In fact, talking about it decreases the likelihood that you experience suicidal ideation or act on these thoughts or urges. Thank you for that. As we're framing this conversation, I'm imagining a lot of what we're going to be talking about is correcting some of the myths. Um, With that in mind, with such an enormous topic, now that we've talked a little bit about kind of the preferred language, where should we go? Well, if someone is... Um, new to me, I always ask directly um, to conduct a risk assessment in terms of have you ever had thoughts about wanting to hurt yourself, um, whether that's um, fatal injury or just thinking about self-injurious behaviors or engaging in self-harm. And then from there, depending on their answer, I will do a formal assessment, like a risk assessment. If they are making a disclosure themselves, then I want to know very specifically Do they have a specific plan? And again, very concrete, very direct, you know, when you're thinking about it, what do you imagine? Is there a specific method that you had in mind? And from there, do you have access to those means? Do you have intent to act on that plan? Those are really important questions that I want to ask pretty quickly to determine not just, you know, building insight into what's going on with this client, what might be contributing to the incidence of these thoughts, what might decrease you know, the frequency, the intensity, the duration, but also are they maybe in need of a higher level of care? Even in conceptualizing this topic, here we are lumping together these two concepts of self-injury or self-injurious behavior and 
suicidal ideation or death by suicide. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about the differentiation between these two? Because I know when I was in my graduate program, very much some of the messaging I received was these two are intimately related. And the further I get away from that, the more that I dive into either topic, I go, well, they may be related, but these are actually kind of two separate categories. Can you speak to that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when I think of suicidal ideation, I think of an individual experiencing thoughts about death, their own death. I um, split them into two categories passive suicidal ideation. So this is simply just the thinking about death, whether it's um, mortality in general or their own fatality, their own death. And then um, there tends to be no intent or plan. That's why I usually will ask, is there a plan? Is there intent to act on that plan? And then if they say yes, that becomes active ideation, which is them actually thinking about their the methods that they would use the plan in which they would implement to cause their own death. And that tends to be when you need to uh, make a referral for a higher level of care, do a little bit of a deeper assessment. Although if anyone's making a disclosure, whether it's passive or or active ideation, I'm always completing a full risk assessment, completing or reviewing a safety plan, making sure that they're coming in, you know, weekly checking in with me, doing all of that. Um, But once it's active ideation with a plan with intent, that tends to be when we're calling hospitals, looking for, you know, inpatient units that have openings, things like that. And then in terms of um, self-harm or self-injurious behaviors, which a lot of people will use interchangeably, and I do as well, um, that seems to be fairly common and accepted within, um, you know, with my colleagues and with my clients as well, that doesn't necessarily have to um, be coupled with suicidal ideation. That's just um, any action that a person has caused to deliberately inflict harm or injury on themselves. And what I'm typically working with is what we'll on shorthand refer to as NSSI, which is non-suicidal self-injury self-injurious behaviors. And that is, you know, to specify that these actions are taken, yes, to cause harm, but not to cause death. So there's many reasons why a client may report engaging in self-injury, but these clients in particular, when it's NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury, are not also having in that moment passive or active suicidal ideation. But it's important to, to ask when they are talking about self-harm, just so that you're aware of what's going on. With that overlap, potential overlap in mind, does the existence of NSSI, so non-suicidal self-injury, is that a red flag for death by suicide? It can be. It certainly can be. I think it varies person to person. Um, but that's why I think it is so important to follow up with questions about suicidal ideation in addition to just having urges to self-harm and better understanding what drove their decision to engage in self-harm, what they, you know, what urges they were hoping to satisfy by engaging in self-harm. That'll better help to understand if it is connected to suicidal ideation. Knowing that there are a lot of myths that need to be debunked, at first glance, can you talk about some of those just to kind of frame 
um, how suicidal ideation or possible eventual death by suicide are actually showing up in therapy. Um, I know that I've had the experience of like, there's what I expect to show up and then there's like the reality. So it's like, well, for example, um, one of the questions many clinicians have is, is it true that someone who tells you that they're thinking about suicide is more likely or less likely to attempt suicide. Like, I think those are some of kind of the weighted questions that exist in the field where it's like, I really don't know. And granted, all of this obviously is contextually related to that individual. But when we look at kind of the research, can you share some of those myths that you hear in the field just to remind us and potentially take that minute to correct it and be like, yeah, you may have learned this, but here's what the research is actually showing. Sure. As I mentioned before, one of the most common myths that I hear as a provider specializing in this area, but also as a person sort of pushing into the community and encouraging people to not just engage in my presentations, but talk with me and their family members and their colleagues and their peers about it is that talking about the topic actually leads to an increase in suicidality, suicidal ideation, an increase in suicide attempts. And that's just not true. Just reminding people that in the short term, it has been shown to, you know, discussing suicidal ideation, urges to self-harm has been found to decrease the likelihood that a person experiences suicidal ideation, but also acts on it, whether it's self-harm or an attempt. And then long-term really decreases the, you know, the incidence and the prevalence of oh, suicide attempts in general. Um, so I think people get nervous about talking to anyone about, you know, this topic, which is again, why I call it the tough stuff. So they don't even have to use the language. If they're afraid of using the language suicide or self-injury or self-harm, they can just refer to it as the tough stuff. Everybody has an understanding, you know, it's established that that's what we're talking about and they can still place it on the table. Um, Another myth that I have found in my experience collaborating with colleagues, be it other clinicians, prescribers is that if an individual is reporting suicidal ideation, it must be a crisis. It must be an emergency. And also that there must be so many significant things happening in that individual's life, trauma, um, you know, a likelihood that there's comorbidity, increased substance abuse, difficulties at home, you know, a lot of myths sort of wrapped into one that they sort of connect automatically with just the statements of I'm thinking of hurting myself or I'm thinking of taking action to die that are are incorrect. I work with clients all of the time who are experiencing mild to moderate levels of anxiety or depression and have really supportive family dynamics, are great students, um, don't have any other like comorbid diagnoses, are not involved in any substance abuse, um, and still are experiencing 
these thoughts and urges. It just happens to be a thought that they have amongst all of their other thoughts. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are in crisis or that they require a higher level of care or that they are a liability to be treated on a weekly basis or monitored very closely in conjunction with therapy and medication management. All of those things can still occur in the face of suicidal ideation. This topic is terrifying for many clinicians Mm -hmm. because of the reality. We are working with people that are in pain and we cannot control what happens necessarily even within our offices, let alone out in the real world and someone's lived experience. Knowing the research that a good number of us during our careers as mental health professionals will have a client die by suicide, do you feel like that makes clinicians really skittish in a way that may that may actually be harmful because we're so uncomfortable talking about it and asking these questions and, and engaging in these conversations? Yes. I think it is a very difficult topic. And I wouldn't want to invalidate any provider's feelings of skittishness Mm -hmm. or concern or fear when working with a client who's presenting with suicidal ideation or self-injurious behaviors, even in the early stages of doing a brief consult when determining whether or not you want to accept Mm -hmm. this client as your own. And that's part of the discussion on the topic, um, determining whether or not that is something that you feel comfortable and competent in managing. And if not, there's absolutely no shame in finding a specialist like myself and referring that client out. That's still you as a provider supporting that individual um, and being there for them in that moment and supporting them just in finding another provider. It's completely acceptable. And if they do decide that in spite of that fear and in spite of the likelihood that they will encounter an individual that has experienced suicidal ideation, that has experienced self-harm, that has engaged in a suicide attempt, that has a family member that may have completed suicide, um, or a client themselves who actually does die by suicide, that Every single time, even if they feel like this is the thing that they do most and best, like myself, this is what I do, this is what I love. Every single time that a client discloses something to me, I have to be mindful of my internal response, my external response. It is really hard to hear someone make a disclosure of suicidal ideation. It is difficult to ask questions about an individual who recently engaged in self-harm. And it's knowing that and validating that and accepting that, that's an important part of just being a provider that works with those individuals. And then also, I think I encourage people who do work with those providers to seek out their own support, have consult groups, supervision, go to therapy. It's part of the process um, and just acknowledging and validating for yourself so that you can also validate for the client that this is a hard topic to discuss. It is the tough stuff. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's break down these two categories further just so that kind of conceptually we can hold that in mind through this conversation. If someone is engaging in self-injurious behavior, 
that is not aimed toward death. Can you speak about kind of the driver of that behavior, knowing that we can only speak in generalizations, you can only pull from the research? Um, who is the person that may be engaging in non-suicidal self-injury? What diagnoses may they have received at some point in the recent or far past? Like kind of what what does that person look like so that we can have an idea of like, oh, this this is... No, you know, yes, I need to screen everybody, but I might slow down a little bit more w- with people with this history. Sure. And I think part of that, I smile as you ask me that question, because there's some myth to that, in that there is this particular presentation or particular diagnosis that is connected to a, an increased likelihood of self-injurious behaviors. And if you see this person, even if you ask them and they tell you that it's not something they've done in the past or thought about, maybe they're being dishonest or there's a barrier to discussing their history with those difficulties because it's so likely with that presentation that they would then have a history of self-harm or just a self-harm. And then also, you know, you want to take into consideration the severity of their presentation. Again, as I mentioned, I work primarily with um, adolescents and young adults with anxiety and depression or mood disorders. And when they are experiencing more moderate to severe symptoms, then there does tend to be an increase in report that they are having urges to self-harm or they have engaged in self-injurious behaviors. It's usually coupled with changes in performance at school, performance in sports. Um, Maybe they're not eating or sleeping as well, or they find themselves unsatiable or sleeping all the time. They're not relating to people in the ways that they were before. They're not finding common ground with their families, with their teachers, with their coaches, with their friends. Maybe there is some um, strife in the family, marital difficulties, financial stress at home, unemployment. There could be some substance use. There might be a history of trauma. These are all things that have been known to be associated with an increase in suicidal ideation and and self-injurious behaviors. And I think that is why it is important to sort of do the assessment um, when you're first meeting with a client and then sort of continuously through your time with sessions with an individual because it is tough stuff and they may not feel comfortable talking to you about it when they first meet you. And so occasionally assessing when they're talking about finding themselves stuck in a depression or having a hard time coming out of a panic attack and having intrusive ideation and feeling like they just don't want to have to do the day over again. They don't want to have to face the people that they had difficulties around. They're anticipating something is really stressful and they don't even want to get to that place. Okay. Well, have you had thoughts of, you know, wanting to hurt yourself in these moments? Have you had thoughts of um, engaging in self-harm? Were there any times that you did engage in self-harm when you found yourself having these thoughts or in these particular places? So it's just an, an opportunity for you to weave it into conversation. Thank you. Um, and knowing that we can only cover so much straddling kind of these two different topics, I know one of the things that's come up before in a conversation about self-injury is the ethics, if you will, of treating somebody who is engaging in active self-injury. 
what are your thoughts on that? Um, knowing that the, even this question is controversial of like, should we be treating somebody in therapy who is regularly burning themselves, who um, they have a section of skin on their body that they tend to cut with a razor blade? Like, can you speak to like, what does treating this stuff from an outpatient perspective look like uh, in terms of, I guess, the stigma that we have around somebody saying, yes, I, I regularly hurt my body? Mm hmm. Well, I regularly see clients who are regularly hurting themselves, and most of those individuals are minors. And so what I will um, discuss with the client and then obviously with the caregiver is the frequency in which I'm meeting with that client. If any client is presenting with suicidal ideation or even urges to self-harm, Obviously, if they're then engaging in self-injurious behaviors, that as well. But I will require that an individual meet with me every week for monitoring at least once a week if it gets to be significant. But again, they're not endorsing like significant intent or plan, then they won't necessarily be eligible or meet the criteria for a higher level of care and patient treatment. Mm -hmm. And so I would rather you know maintain them on my caseload Um more than once a week while we work to stabilize them. And there are, you know, a variety of things that I can do with the client and their family to support them both in session with me and outside of session um, in terms of, you know, preparing their caregivers for working with and supporting their children, supporting my minor clients in having conversations with those that are around them that are supporting them about what's going on so that if they do need immediate support or a high level of care, they know what the resources are. They know the contact information. They have little cards that they can slip in between their cell phone case and their cell phone and carry with them at all times so that they can you know, reach those resources 24-7. In our area, we have 24-7 uh, local helpline, hotline, stabilization center. So that's amazing. Um, and then it's just, it becomes something that we talk about every time it becomes the focus of treatment until we, we feel like it's stabilized. I think for providers, it can feel scary to know that a client is experiencing these. Mm. And where I've heard it come up too is the fear of what I can only describe as like kind of co-signing a behavior, if you will. So I'm looking at it from like a harm reduction perspective, which for folks who work in addiction, mm -hmm. we have this, you know, we've been kind of marinated in uh, abstinence based model when it comes to harm. And then if we're pulling from harm reduction, so let's say we do have a client who um, will light a match or a cigarette and use that to burn their bodies. I think sometimes therapists feel scared to be involved in a conversation, which is like, I understand that you do that. And can we talk about hygiene? Can we talk about, um, you know, how are you cleaning the wound? How are you tending to it after the fact? You're nodding. Can you speak to that? Um, because these are like, these are not topics, at least for me, that I talked about in my graduate program. And it can seem really scary to be like, I'm sorry, what? A therapist is having a conversation with you about cleaning your razor blades? Um, mm -hmm. As someone who specializes, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I always encourage in my presentations and trainings, if possible, upon a disclosure of self-harm, like immediate self-harm from a client, to ask where the harm was done, how it was done, and can I see it? And a lot of individuals, to your point, are like, you ask that question. I have to ask that question. And my encouragement is, yes, 
ask, at least you can ask, because there's a chance that the client won't feel comfortable, will say no, or maybe it's in an area where it feels private to them, which is completely appropriate. They get to say no. You know, we get to ask questions, they get to say no. And even still, I will provide them with information about cleanliness, hygiene, um, medical intervention as necessary, but I can more directly specify it to what's going on with them if I have eyes on the injury. And so I do, I ask if I can see it almost on every single occasion, my clients allow me to see it. You know, that comes with time, rapport building. At this point, hopefully they understand that this is something that I see every day that I talk about every day. Um, I think from my clients, they've reported to me that that feels very calming to them, that they know it's not the first time that they've, that I've heard someone has hurt themselves or cut themselves or burned themselves. That's something I do on a daily basis. And so it feels a little bit easier to be vulnerable with me on the topic, um, which is why I think it's you know so important for clinicians who do have this experience and specialize in it to talk about that fact with their clients from very early stages from the intake so that these clients who might be having these thoughts or urges or might be engaging in these actions, whether anybody else knows about it or it's done in complete secrecy, start to have this feeling of, okay, this is not just me. This is something that people can talk about in therapy. This is something that people talk about with this therapist, like in this chair that I'm sitting in, this is part of the conversation. So this is okay for me to do. And I do exactly what you said, have conversations about what was the object that you use? Where did you get it? If you're um, safety planning with a family and they're locking up all of the sharps and a client still has an urge to cut, they're going to find something sharp somewhere else. And that somewhere else could be outside or in an area that's not kept clean. And so I want to know where they found the object. Did they do anything to clean it? These clients are not necessarily thinking in that moment, I need to make sure to like wipe it down with soap and water to use like dial in warm water to clean the razor blade before I use it. And then even beyond that, the aftercare of what do I do after I've made a cut or caused a burn or snapped, um, like using an elastic or something that's going to like retract back on their hands and leave a welt or a mark. Those are things that I want to know, you know, what did you do immediately afterward? How have you taken care of it since? When did this happen? What is it what does it look like now? I have absolutely had clients who've come into my office with sort of a gauze that they've created from different objects in their homes, taped it up and could still be bleeding in my office and some of them might say, oh, it was just a superficial cut. Like if, I, if you just ask them and you don't see it, it was superficial. It was no big deal. I handled it. And then I look at it and it in fact needs stitches. And so by having eyes on it, I get to then you know make the call or have the parent or caregiver or client, if they're over 18, take themselves to urgent care or go to the hospital and have stitches because that will not heal appropriately if you leave it like that. Um, and then afterward, are you wondering about leaving a scar? Do you want scar minimization? 
vitamin E oil has been found to be very helpful in sort of minimizing scars, whether it be from snaps or from burns or from cuts. Some of my clients like the idea that their actions will leave a mark. Some of my clients really, it's an undesirable reminder of something that happened in the past. And so they want scar minimization. So talking with them about maintaining the hygiene of the object, maintaining the hygiene of the injury, um, and keeping eyes on it, knowing that, you know, if it starts to get, um, like red or bruised, or if there's signs of an infection, you can at least provide them with all that information. Again, that's if I get eyes on it, or if I don't either way, I'm providing them with this knowledge so that they have it. And also from a liability perspective, which a lot of clinicians want to be mindful of, you can then document that, you asked these questions, you provided psychoeducation on injury maintenance and hygiene and appropriate medical intervention follow-up. And so that's something that you can then document for yourself in the notes after you see that client. Thank you for covering those details because I know I've had the experience that sometimes we don't talk about these things and then we find ourselves in session and we go, what do I do now? Um, And I think there's a lot of power where it's like, hey, maybe this hasn't happened yet, but if it does, here are some of your options and, and what you might do to respond. For you as someone who works with minors, with folks who are under the age of 18, The question I'm about to ask is really loaded with a huge asterisk that is, you need to know your state laws uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of (laughs) ethical requirements and what's expected and at what age do you break privacy, things like that. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit when it comes to awareness in a child or teen client of non-suicidal self-injury? Is it an industry standard to automatically break privacy if someone's hurting their body? Like, How do you handle that as someone who does this day in and day out? I... Personally, at the start of every client relationship, let them know when I'm talking about the limits of confidentiality, that if there's any indication that they are in harm's way, whether that's danger to themselves or danger to others, then I'm going to be informing their caregivers about what's going on because ultimately I am here to support them and keep them safe and also support the people in their lives to do that same thing as well. And so it's a conversation we have and my younger clients acknowledge with me whether they feign misunderstanding or you know state that that never happened when they do maybe make a disclosure and then are reminded that I have to inform whoever's outside in the waiting room what's going on. That's certainly something that occurs. Um, And also, I think a lot of clients are sharing the information within the context of therapy because they know that it's going to be a conversation that's had. They don't have to have it by themselves. I offer many alternative ways of how to communicate that information. First, I don't immediately jump up and respond and say, we have to bring whoever's outside in. It's just a conversation. I'm I'm learning about what's going on. I'm there for them. I'm allowing them to process this experience as again, it might be their first time ever making a disclosure like this. I will safety plan with them. Then I will say, okay, you know what's got to happen. Whoever's out here, we've got to bring them in. Let's figure out how we're going to do this. How are we going to talk about this? Do you want me to bring them in and share what I've learned, what you reported to me? I'm happy to share it. 
you can be present and you can participate in the conversation or you can be a silent observer on the couch and we will have processed the language that we're going to use, topics and aspects of the disclosure that they feel comfortable with me sharing, that they don't want me to share yet. We'll have some sort of a nonverbal communication of like, I'll wiggle my glasses or they'll to be like, Jamie, stop talking or Jamie, please keep talking. I don't want to talk about this anymore. It could be the opposite. I could bring them in and I could be a silent observer. I could allow them to navigate the conversation, to direct it in whatever way they see fit with the knowledge that if they leave something out or forget something or there's something I want to add, I have permission to inform the caregivers about this thing that we maybe skipped over. I have also agreed in certain circumstances to allow the caregivers to come in and the minor to share with me outside of the room. I'm within earshot. I know what's going on. They also understand that I'm coming back in immediately to review what was shared and make sure, again, nothing was skipped over or forgotten. That's our opportunity to sort of review the safety plan with the caregiver, um, see if maybe they had some insight that the child or adolescent didn't in terms of what might drive these ideations or urges, what they... um, you know, might communicate externally that a client might not realize, but someone on the outside is like, oh, I can tell when you're finding yourself in this particular mental space, this is what you look like, this is what you do, this is what you sound like. Um, So all that information is very helpful, but I review all those options with the minor first, and then we agree upon sort of a a way of communicating those um, thoughts or urges to the caregiver and then bring them in. But I do that every time a disclosure is made. It puts you as a clinician in a tough spot knowing like, so for example, you had said, um, if someone allows you to see an injury and you're looking at it going, oh, I think that puppy needs stitches, um, that obviously you're not a trained medical professional and the importance of documentation of you know providing the referrals, documenting that you provided the referrals. Um, and I know that I've experienced as a clinician hearing the stories too about where non-suicidal self-injury turned into accidental suicide, turned into accidental hospitalization. That was never the person's intent. Um, but, and I think that's one of the reasons that this topic is you know, tough stuff, even for clinicians is because of how quickly things can go south and, and feel unmanageable. Yes. And I think that sort of ties back to your um, statement a little bit earlier about the conversations about hygiene and having eyes on the injury, because then you can also provide psychoeducation regarding the depths of the injuries, the locations of the injuries, and how dangerous they can be. I mean, all actions intended to harm a person are dangerous inherently. And there are some injuries that some individuals might think that's just going to be a superficial cut and it's just in the right lo- wrong location. It's um, at a depth that they weren't expecting and they nick something they weren't expecting and they need to ha- seek immediate medical treatment or it could be you know, fatal. Thank you for bringing up that aspect. Um, I know I've been involved in conversations about, say for example, uh, cutting in the thigh or mm-hmm. pelvis and that that can, if you if you hit the wrong areas can be very dangerous. Yes. With unintended consequences. Um, So as we're thinking about kind of 
non-suicidal self-injury and differentiating out suicidality, you've mentioned a couple times the phrase safety plan. Now, this is one of the things that I think is misunderstood in the field, in the way that we talk about safety planning. I know it's been my experience as a clinical documentation trainer that sometimes it's like, oh, well, then I have this document that I'm going to pull out. That is the safety plan. And it has these boxes that I'm that have been pre-filled out that I'm going to check. And by doing this thing, I have now reduced my liability as a provider. And I have also helped ensure your safety. As someone who specializes in this, can you speak to that aspect of safety planning and kind of give us the quick and dirty about like, what is a safety plan? Because I think there's a lot of confusion in the field. Sure. So for me, um, after a disclosure is made, I will have just a conversation with the client about what's been going on. When did this start? Are there particular warning signs that a crisis might be developing for them? Are there specific activities, people, places that might um, lead to an increase in the frequency, the intensity, or the duration of these thoughts or urges? Are there, um, as I mentioned before, internal warning signs that they'll acknowledge or external warning signs they know that they put out for other people? And that's where if it's a minor, caregivers can come in and say, oh yeah, I, I definitely notice that this happens. There's a change in your mannerism, a change in your speech, your tone, how you interact with us. That lets me know that you're having a bit of a harder time. And then um, on the other end of the spectrum, are there certain activities, people, places that you find distract you from these thoughts or urges that help decrease the intensity, frequency, and duration of what's going on? Who specifically is a person or people that you can discuss these thoughts with when they're happening in the moment? And with that, I usually have um, them write out their full name, take down the address of that person and the phone number of that person so that they can carry that information around. I'm not expecting, to your point, a client, especially a teenager, to like carry around a packet of safety planning. <laughs> they're, they're not going to do that. <laughs> but something that they can like fit into their pocket, or as I mentioned before, a lot of my clients do actually do this, slide the little bits of information we decide are most important and critical for them in between their cell phone case and their cell phone because they're always carrying their cell phone. So they always have access to that information. That would be a piece of information, that person, that name, the phone number, the address. So if for whatever reason, the client themselves can't utilize it and someone finds them in distress or in crisis and they're asking, what should they do? Who should they call? That number is already readily available for them or whoever's working to support them. Same thing with local resources. I live in Dutchess County. We have a helpline that's text or talk 24-7. Talk, people will pick up immediately, available to you in crisis. Text, I've heard that it's not always as quick to respond. So if it's an immediate crisis, I'm always encouraging my clients that as mortifying as it can be to talk to somebody on the phone, it's going to be worth it for them to get an immediate response, immediate feedback by calling them on the phone give them that number. That number is connected to a stabilization center that we have nearby that sort of is a triage away from a medical emergency room where you're going to be working and competing with individuals with physical injuries and only for individuals that have mental health needs or substance use needs. And 
They're going to do an evaluation. You can stay up to 24 hours, which might be all the time that you need, very often more than enough time um, to stabilize someone who typically has passive ideation or has recently started thinking about hurting themselves, but hasn't engaged in any sort of attempt or inflicted any harm to themselves. So it sort of redirects them away from a higher level of care in terms of hospitalization. They can stay for up to 24 hours, meet with a provider, potentially start medication or work with a medication management um, service, and then be discharged back to their typical outpatient program. So they have all that information. And because I don't expect them to be carrying around this packet, usually I will have them place the information that we've compiled on the safety plan in an area both where they anticipate being stressed, so they have access to some of those things as a reminder, and also in the place they might go when they're feeling like they need to de-stress. So if they're in a crisis and there's a particular place in their home or their car or in their neighborhood or with a friend, those areas also have different aspects of the safety planning because I'm never going to expect in a crisis my clients, no matter how long we've been talking about it, to automatically pull out their resources, their coping skills, and utilize them. But if they do have that information on a safety plan and it's literally stuck to the door or the window or in the glove compartment and they can reach for it, they could read it, it could be in their face, it could be reminded of it. They could call the person who also knows about this information and can prompt them through it. Then it it can be really really beneficial. Does safety planning work in with work being the I'm going to say reduction in risk of dying by suicide? I think it's a great first step toward managing suicidal ideation and self-injurious behaviors because it does allow for a structured discussion, especially for individuals that may feel overwhelmed or ill-prepared from a clinician standpoint to manage that disclosure. It sort of allows them to prompt themselves and their clients through discussion about what might be driving these thoughts or urges, what might be contributing to them and what might be helping decrease um, these thoughts and urges and, and ways to manage them and cope more effectively. And then from there, I think it's more the active work of meeting with the individuals, discussing potential replacement options, which I'm happy to discuss further, um, you know, discuss other forms of therapy. I, I, personally use a combination of CBT and DBT in my work. So I'll use diary cards a lot in my management um, with clients, but the safety planning itself, and that ties along with the research of contracting for safety, like having a client physically sign a statement that they will not engage in any form of self-harm between this session and the next is, has been found to be, um, not significantly related to a decrease in overall self-harm attempts. Thank you for addressing that specifically in that element for it, because there was a time where that was the standard where it's like, okay, I'm going to type it up while we're sitting here and you're going to sign it and I'm going to sign it. Now I have reduced your risk. And what I'm hearing you say is really the recognition, I guess, of the principles when we're talking about safety planning instead of the check boxing. So that using, as you said, safety planning is kind of a jumping off point to help us 
tackle this um, and let it facilitate conversation instead of, okay, I've done the thing. I, you know, I pulled out the document, they signed, I signed, now I've done the thing, I have succeeded in reducing their risk. And hey, so tell me about that water polo game last weekend. I appreciate that reminder, because I think when it comes down through the research or the news, sometimes it's like, oh, so then we don't do that anymore. And it's like, well, wait, it's that we need to appreciate the the depth of the tool that we're using and how to use it effectively, which is to actually, it sounds like, have it be integrated into the real treatment plan. And I know for me, as someone who does a lot of clinical documentation training, there is like kind of the checkbox treatment planning to reduce, you know, distressing symptoms check. And then there's like the actual purpose of treatment planning, which is what are your goals? Let me understand how that looks for you. Like it's a real application of that concept instead of just having it be this templated thing that we check off. Absolutely. And we have to remember these clients are with us 45 to 60 minutes a week, sometimes best case scenario, they go home and they're still experiencing these thoughts and urges. So the safety planning goes beyond a physical document you create in session with them upon a disclosure. It goes to how do they um, support their environment to support them when they do find themselves experiencing suicidal ideation or urges to self-harm. And this can be for minor clients or for clients 18 plus with minors, obviously I'm including um, and placing a little bit more responsibility on the caregivers, but I'm having a lot of discussion about um, means restriction. So when um, an individual doesn't have access to their intended means that they were thinking about in terms of their plan, whether that's Uh, related to suicidal ideation or self-harm, a less lethal method is unlikely to be um, obtained. They're not going to spend their time looking for something else if what they had in mind in that moment is not readily accessible. And so how that translates to my safety planning with caregivers and with um, young adult and adult clients after they leave the office is, okay, what are these means that you have in mind? Do you have access to these means? Let's make sure that you have limited access or no access. So in terms of sharps or things that um, could inflict any sort of harm, right? We've talked about burning a little bit. We've talked about snapping a little bit, cutting. Um, You can get a lockbox and some clinicians have lockboxes in their office. I always tell individuals that they can purchase them in a place like Home Depot or Lowe's and provide some psychoeducation on how to ensure that those lockboxes are as effective as possible. So make sure that the key isn't like dangling in the lock itself or that it's not hidden in the drawer where everything else is hidden. And it's not the client's birthday if it's a number code, that the code is changing and not kept in a location that can be discovered easily. Because again, if they have an idea of using an object and they don't have access to their this object in the immediate, you know, time following this initial urge, it can be as short as five to 10 minutes that pass when this insistence, this urge to act on that thought passes enough for them to engage in some safety planning, utilize some of their coping skills, reach out for a support person. And if we're talking about more lethal methods, if they're thinking, okay, I have a gun or I'm thinking of using a gun, there's firearms 
storage and firearm storage safety. So you can get two boxes. You can lock up the firearm and the ammunition separately. You don't want to lock them together because if for some reason the person obtains access to one of the lock boxes, then you don't want them to have everything readily available to them. You still want it to be more time to allow for the likelihood that that urge, that intensity decreases. A lot of police departments and fire departments offer free firearm storage. So you can call them and let them know that you have a firearm and that you don't want it in the home for these particular reasons. You're concerned about the safety of a family member and they will hold that firearm and only certain people can obtain it with certain information. And so you don't even have to worry about locking it up. You can keep it outside of the home. And so I'm always encouraging people to check in with their local fire departments, their local police departments, um, because there just tends not to be a substitution uh, for a different method when they can't easily access their intended plan. Thank you for that. Um, Certainly in the -the run-of-the-mill training conversation about reducing a client's risk of death by suicide that is one of the standard questions in that assessment of like, what is your desired means? Do you have access to that means? And certainly reading that list. So if a client says, what I've been fantasizing about is drowning, my brain goes straight to, wow, that there are typically a lot of ways that someone could engage in that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share a little bit more about the concepts of means restriction and how that actually like plays out clinically with a client and reducing their risk? Sure. In those, I mean, in those cases, obviously there's going to be no way to completely restrict their means to things they There are showers at home, bathtubs at home, in schools, at places of work, at the gym. You know, there's pools. There are um, ways for them to follow through on that plan if they wanted to. And so for um, instance like that where I can't necessarily restrict their access to their intended means, I might work on better understanding the urge that they're hoping to satisfy by engaging in this self-harm or this plan that they're intending to act on, because perhaps we can satisfy that urge with something different and not at all harmful in a way that just takes the edge off enough that they can then, again, utilize their support network, utilize their coping skills, reach out to a hotline or go to the stabilization center, call 911 if necessary. Um, so things that I have found to be very effective in my work with clients um, is I work do work with a lot of individuals who cut um, or who, who inflict any sort of harm and leave a mark. And whether that mark is desirable and they like to look at it, they like to feel it, they like to pick at it. Um, some of the replacements that I found to be helpful are um, magic marker, permanent marker, tattoo markers. Like Bic offers temporary tattoo markers that come in a variety of colors. And they have sort of a copper color and a red color that a lot of clients report look like the wounds that they would inflict, you know, with something sharp, for example. And they're able to just press 
on that part of their body where they're inflicting harm, then that might satisfy the urge for pressure. That might satisfy the need to leave a mark, to look at a mark, to have something to feel, something to show other people. Similar to that, um, I'll use henna with clients. Comes in similar colors with henna multiple um, urges can be satisfied. It's something that they can leave um, some sort of mark. It dries so they can start to sort of resemble a scab, which they can pick at without opening an actual wound. And then once they pick at it, it again leaves this like long-term mark that lasts for a few weeks, satisfies this potential urge. Some of my clients like the look of blood or the feel of blood. So we might play with food coloring. I have pink and food and red food coloring in my office. Some of my clients just report that the image of or the action of right there, dripping a couple of drops of red food coloring on a tissue and holding it up and looking at it or placing it on the part of the body where they have the urge to inflict that harm gives them just enough of an exhale to then realize that they're in a place where they need support and before they actually engage in the self-harm they have utilized this replacement that leaves them completely unharmed. Um, so just a couple of options. Thank you. I appreciate that. And again, I think as we're talking about this, I'm realizing a lot of these things almost fall in the realm of case management, if you will. And I think that it's a different approach for those of us who don't specialize in it. Again, because it's like, Oh, I've never thought of that. I've never thought of pulling out red food coloring or getting some paint and and going through kind of what are harm reduction strategies because it can f- just feel so scary to have the conversation at all. Yes. Um, and and yes, we need to be mindful of our liability and the ethics of the interventions and the behaviors that we're engaging in. Absolutely. And I appreciate you coming on and kind of opening up that door and saying, no, look, look at all these options that are here that can really help improve what, what we're doing clinically. Mm -hmm. And I have certainly had colleagues come up to me and question the ethics of engaging in those sorts of behavior replacements because they question and worry about whether we're leaning too hard into role play or reenactment, which is only like perpetuating this thought or urge. And my thinking on the matter and my experience in working with clients utilizing these replacements is that they're going to have this thought or urge. It exists for them as part of their thinking. It's an automatic thought that they have that none of us can prevent. If I better understand what drives the urge and what can satisfy the urge in a way that prevents them from inflicting harm on themselves, that feels like a worthy endeavor to at least try with a client. And obviously, after you know discussing the options, trying the options in session, and then allowing them to try it in between sessions at home, I'm going to have a discussion with them about how it went. Did it you know decrease the intensity, the frequency, the duration of these thoughts or urges? Was it a longer period of time between when these urges even present themselves presented themselves? Did they notice a decrease in Instance where they did engage in self harm. And if I don't find it to be effective, maybe it's just not the right tool or technique for that particular client, but I have found it to be, generally speaking, a very effective intervention um, with my clients who self harm. There's obviously a lot of creativity involved in, in what you're suggesting. 
when you and I discussed tackling this topic, there's an unbelievable amount of content here that we certainly cannot even begin to do justice to in an hour. For folks who are listening, thinking, I need to learn more about this. So let's first start and talk about the NSSI part of things. Where do you recommend folks get the best education um, for more information about non-suicidal self-injury and working with clients who self-harm? I will say for both um, non-suicidal self-injury and also uh, suicidal ideation, the CDC um, yearly or um, every other year releases a technical package, which includes policies, interventions, um, suggested treatment, where they're really condensing all of the research in terms of prevalence, techniques, um, developments in the field, appropriate language to use. It's dozens of pages. Um, it's not a short document. And that's a really good place to start. And we'll provide citations for where you can also go to look for more in-depth information in terms of the research that's contributing to their package and um, and things like that. Thank you. And how about training organizations? Are there any that are reputable that you recommend or any websites that are helpful? Because as you know, as I'm listening as a non-expert to what you're saying, these are um, some interventions that I've never even thought about uh, just to be completely transparent. Sure. And so it's like, where did you learn this? How do we learn this? Yes. So for me as a clinical psychologist in New York State, I go to the Office of Professions website where they have the list of approved and reputable organizations that host um, approved and accepted CE programs for um, people in my field. And within that, I will then look specifically for individuals who are presenting on the topic because I know the process and the procedures with which they had to sort of be vetted and have the experience and um, the specialization in working on the topic that they're discussing. And that is somewhere where I would you know, trust and send other individuals to learn more about the topics. Perfect. Thank you. Um, for our listeners who want to learn more and about your work, can you please uh, remind them again? So this is Dr. Jamie Arnoff. Uh, please tell them where to find you. Sure. Um, so you can find me at my private practice uh, therapy email um, and, and website, bfftherapy.com. I do a lot of trainings just in general about the topic, but I also consult with clinicians and prescribers who may be wondering about working with this clientele or may find themselves working with a client who's high risk and they just want some support, some supervision, some techniques that maybe they've never thought about. So you can uh, reach me through that um, website, bfftherapy.com. We have an Instagram at bfftherapy that we sort of fill with um, our personalities and tips and tricks about mental health and sometimes suicide prevention for our younger audience. So the children and adolescents that I typically see so they can not only um, just learn a little bit about more about me and what it might be like to work with me as they and their caregivers are trying to find a therapist for them, but also just have um, 
a space where they can learn more about this. And then the organization that I mentioned before, where we uh, develop presentations and push into schools and organizations to talk about youth mental health and suicide prevention is called James's Warriors. So you can go um, to James's Warriors website and learn more about our presentations. We present um, up and down the entire state of New York. And we'll be happy to you know discuss the topic with, with all of you. Thank you. Um, I think as you said, there's so much stigma around this. Thank you for being one of the clinicians out there that's trying to increase our comfort. Um, because as you said, people think about death and, mm -hmm. and we need to be able to talk about death and understand how to have these conversations. So thank you for joining us to hopefully help us feel a little bit more comfortable. And I know after talking with you, I feel a little bit more comfortable. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and for bringing this conversation to the table. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.